finally getting cooler out. It's been a while. Uh, I don't know what you were doing Tuesday night. Uh, some of you were probably doing something smarter than I was. Uh, I know my wife has went to bed at a normal hour. I'm like, I'm going to keep waiting and find out uh, what is going on with this election. And I thought, oh, I'll be in bed by midnight. And then it kept going to one, to two. I tried to go to bed at two, could not sleep, got back up three uh, to see the speech. Uh, And I was online a lot and saw some people in despair, other people celebrating. And what happens is when we come to an election often, when we come to politics, we hit an election or a big change that's happening, and people have a belief that a new age is dawning. If you remember eight years back uh, when Obama won for the first term, and there was a lot of hope in our country, a lot of people were like, oh, now granted, in certain circles there was a lot of hope, in other hope there was this despair. But the idea was a new age has dawned and everything's going to be different. He ran on hope and change and everyone's like, a new day has come. And then this past Tuesday, an election happened. And when some people are saying a new day has come, and others, when they hear a new day has come, are in despair, in sadness, in fear. And what we call that when you are approaching politics in the way that you say everything has changed, it's a new day, it's a new age, everything's going to change. Uh, Some have called that the eschatology of politics. Now, eschatology is a word that describes a study of the last thing. So we've been going through the book of Revelation, talks about the second coming, talks about uh, a new age dawning, and talks about, in the passage today, about the new heavens and the new earth. And so when we talk about an eschatology of politics, it's the belief that Our work in politics, our organizations, our political parties are going to bring a new day that's going to change everything. And if you've been around long enough, you'll come to find out while politics changes things, it sure doesn't change everything. It sure doesn't bring in a new age. It doesn't bring in the change that we are longing for because no matter what, we had hope and change and people's hearts were moved eight years ago. And then those same people that were really excited about that ended up being disappointed and disillusioned. And I guarantee those who are excited this time around, there will come a day where they are disappointed. In our culture, we have basically two uh, stories that we like to tell about how the new age is going to come. One story is the conservative story. And basically the conservative story says the new age... The good old days were like what we long for. That's already happened. And if we want a new age to start, we need to reach into the past and pull it into the future. We need to get the good old days here again. So we talk about making things great again. We talk about uh, the good old days, what was back there. That's what we need to bring. Progressives, They look to the future. They have a vision of the future and what it will look like. And it's different from the past. And they long for a new age to come. 
And what I'm going to tell you today is that if you are a Christian, if you've been saved by Jesus, you don't fit into either of those narratives. You don't fit into a narrative that says we're longing for a new age to come that is somehow in the past, the good old days, and we need to bring them back. Good old days weren't as good as we remember them. And for many people, they weren't that great. In the progressive vision, they're trying to make a vision that looks like what the human imagination has decided the world should look like. But what God does is say there is a new age coming in which things will be set right, but it's going to come as a gift. It's going to come as a gift from God. So we believe we can make that in politics, either bringing the good old days back again or going into the future and forging a new path, a new world that no one's ever seen before. Where there is a world that no one has seen before, but God is going to give it to us. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 21. And let me just add, in the midst of this political season, where some people are fearful, where some people are hurt, where some people feel like they are marginalized, whether you think that is legitimate or not, whether you agree with their politics, our hearts must go out to people. Our hearts must be open to those who are afraid that they are marginalized in our society. We must, we must show concern. That is not political. That is the compassion of God. That is the love of God. We must be peacemakers. So sometimes that's going to mean you're not going to take a side and you're going to stand on the side of truth and of justice and of righteousness and speak for God. Where some people will say, what about the other side? And you'll say, I'm not speaking for a side. I'm speaking for what's right. And so we need to be peacemakers. So I encourage you in your interactions, whether they be online or in person, I encourage you to do in-person conversations with people. They go much better, in my experience, than online conversations. But Jesus says that the peacemakers will be called children of God. And that is our calling in the midst of a country in which there is tension, in which there is pain, in which there is fear, which some people are excited about what's going on. And our job is to go into the midst of that and speak a word about God and what he wants to do and what he stands for in his righteousness and his grace and the good news that Jesus is Lord no matter who's in charge. And our job is to point people to that. So it's not about party. It's not about politics. It's about the kingdom of God. And we're going to read this passage. And I feel like this sets us up well for the place we are at. So we don't fall into a place of despair. And we don't fall into a place of overabundant joy in politics. But we look to God and his promise of a new age. So Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're reaching the end of the book of Revelation, and much of it has focused on judgment, and it keeps telling this story over and over again, and it gets a little farther each time, and then you get to 21, and you get to the end of the story, or the beginning of a new story. It's a new heavens and a new earth. So sometimes when people imagine what the end of the Bible looks like, or the end of the Christian story looks like, we imagine that uh, it's us going to heaven sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, looking slightly bored, uh, maybe fishing in the clouds. Like, usually people have an idea what that will look like. We've seen it in countless cartoons, and we just assume, well, that must be where this story is heading. But this is where the story heads. I saw a new heavens and a new earth, because the old ones had passed away. And so the trajectory of the story, where the story is going, is not away from creation. It's not a, away from the earth to another location. So our problem is not, oh, we're in a physical world and we need to get to some spiritual realm. Our problem is the brokenness in our earth, the sin and the death in our earth. And Jesus comes to redeem us from that, he takes on our sin, he takes death for us, and he resurrects. And what Jesus did in the resurrection is what he's going to do for the whole world. So this earth, in all of its systems, and all the things that go on here, and all the pain and death will pass away, and out of the tomb, a resurrected earth will come. There will be a new earth, a renewed earth. So when you think of the future, when you think of eternity, you don't think of necessarily floating in clouds, but you think of an earth in which there are trees and grass, in which there are cities and there's work, where there's music and dancing, where there's culture, where there's food, where you have something to contribute, where you have a job that will give you joy. And so the picture is of this new creation in which everything will be set right. Notice it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now if you like uh, swimming or water skiing, you may have been disappointed at hearing that. You're like, there's no sea? That's a ripoff. Like, I just want to go like some water skiing. Like, or tubing, like, 
I hate both of those things, so I'm not bummed. But I I'm, I'm, know some people love that kind of stuff. They love being out on the lake. Uh, they love to be out on boats. Makes me nervous. Uh, but it says there's no sea. So why does it say that? Well, sea in apocalyptic literature and in the ancient Near East was a picture of chaos. It was something that swallowed up ships. It's something that represented evil, that, that represented destruction. Uh, in their mind, that's where the dead were kept. In fact, uh, a chapter or two ago in Revelation, it said the sea gave up their dead. So the sea, when it says there's a new heaven and new earth, it's saying there's no more evil. There's no more chaos. So when you turn on the news in the new heaven and new earth, there's not chaos popping up all over. There's not all these things that are, what is going on? But in the new heaven and new earth, there is no sea. Now, whether that means literally there's no sea, or if this is just figurative to talk about chaos and evil and death, but it's saying this world is without that sea. And notice uh, verse 4, it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It mentions crying, and death, and mourning, and pain, all things that we know very well. Things that weigh on us, that ache our hearts. We have lost people that we love dearly. We have been mistreated. We have seen things we wish we could unsee. We have been treated in ways that we, could, we don't even want to repeat. We don't even want to uh, talk about. But the, the promise is that God one day will set all things right. And while we have an abundance of tears and pain is coming a day when he will wipe those tears away. So this passage is hope for you. There is hope that God will set things right eventually. In all that pain you feel that, you feel like you will never shake through this life. There will come a day where God will wipe those tears. You will cry. Sometimes you just need to cry it out. But notice there are tears, but he wipes them all away. And this gives us hope in the midst of troubles. It gives us hope in the midst of pain that there's coming a day where they will be wiped away and there's no more evil. There's no more injustice. There's no more mistreatment. There's no more corrupt politics. There's none of that. It's wiped out and he sets things right. And this is our hope. So even if you're like, I don't like the way things are going, well, that's, that's, that's not your ship. You're on the kingdom of God, and that's ever sailing on. It's heading towards this destination. Notice uh, verse 2, and it says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice the new Jerusalem is this city. It's a picture of God's people, the dwelling place of all the saints, all the people who have trusted Christ. They come down from heaven in this city. This city comes down to earth. Notice the trajectory again. The goal is not for us to get up to heaven, but for heaven to come down to earth. That's where the story goes. 
So sometimes we focus on we need to escape. We need to get away from this world that we need to go somewhere else. But what God is always after is getting himself to dwell amongst us here. It's for heaven to come here. We want to get out. But God says, I've sent you into the world, and my goal is that you would dwell with me on earth. So, sometimes we want to escape. Uh, people want to run. They're like, oh, we're Christians, so that means we need to bunker out and hide out. But we go into the world with confidence because we know God has sent us. We do not need to escape because the trajectory of this story is not of us eventually escaping. So some people feel, I'm going to move out. I'm going to hide from everyone. I'm not going to engage in society. I'm not going to engage in politics. I'm not going to talk to anybody because eventually God's just going to suck us out of here and we're going to get out of here. But that's not the way the story goes. The story is a trajectory of God wanting to be here. So think about the narrative of Scripture. In Genesis, you have God who created this garden, this garden that functioned like a temple, in which God's people were the people made in the image of God. They were like priests. that They ministered in the garden to each other, uh, to the animals. They, they engaged with God. And remember the part where, where Adam and Eve sin, and God comes down, and it says he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Which you're like, what? God was walking in the garden? What? And it just mentions that, but it says it like it's been happening. So the beginning of the story is God dwelling in the garden with his people. It's what you were made for. You were made to dwell with God. You were made to be at home with God. But what happens then? We sin and we're exiled from the garden. We're exiled from dwelling with God. Move the story forward to the Exodus. God sets his people free from slavery, leads them out across the Red Sea, he gives them the Ten Commandments and gives them instructions on how to make a tabernacle. Tabernacle was a tent that they built, put it in the middle of their encampment in the wilderness, and God dwelled in that tabernacle. His glory rested there. So God's plan was he was going to create a people and live in their midst. And later on, Solomon builds the temple. It's a permanent structure for God to dwell in the midst of his people. But what happens? Israel sins. Israel gets exiled. Just like Adam and Eve get exiled from the dwelling place of God in the garden. So Israel, God's people, seeking his face, get exiled from the dwelling place of God. And the truth is, we have all been exiled. We are all searching for home. People are searching for meaning. They're searching for belonging. And it's because they were designed to dwell with God. That old song, uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, is because we were designed for something more. As humans, we were designed to dwell with God in harmony and in relationship and in flourishing, and we've been exiled because of our sin. But Jesus comes along. So God 
He wanted to dwell with people in the garden. He gave them the tabernacle, the temple. Come to Jesus. And in John, it says, the word referring to Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. You know that word dwelt? It means tabernacled. So the trajectory of the story is God wants to dwell with us. And he ends up doing it in Jesus as a very person. Not just a tent, not just a building, but Jesus comes and dwells among us. He tabernacles in our midst. Jesus joins in with, with the pain and the tears and the death and tastes all of that for us and dwells in our midst. And what does it tell us about when God dwells in the midst of humans? Some people don't like it. It tended to be the religious people. But all other people were attracted to him. He got in trouble for eating with all the types of people religious people don't want you to eat with because it will mess with your reputation. And Jesus did not care about his reputation because when God dwells in the midst of people, he welcomes them with grace untold. He welcomes them with hospitality. He welcomes them with love. And so it's no surprise that the end of the story God wanted to dwell people with people in the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the person of Jesus. This God does not stand far off. He wants to dwell with his people. So Jesus dwelled in the midst as one of us. And then in Revelation 21, God dwells with his people. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, the way it was supposed to be all along. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. There is an intimacy to that. That you were made for that intimacy. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Your God will be near you. And this is a message we have to give to people. If you feel exiled, if you feel like you don't have a home, there is a God who welcomes you. He gives you grace and mercy and hospitality, and he wants to dwell with you in relationship. And notice it says that the city that comes down is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's talking about anticipation. So we're in the midst of those pain and tears and death and sorrow over the way our world goes. And we anticipate with hope. We have angst right now. We have pain. We have hurt. But hope says there's coming a new day. There's coming a new age. That even though you face all these things, there's coming a resurrection. Not just of you as an individual, but the resurrection of the whole world, of the whole creation. I remember, uh, I've told people before that uh, the engagement period 
is the most painful period. Like, it's not super enjoyable. Uh, and here's why. Like, you're looking towards the wedding the whole time, and you're planning, and there's angst, and you're longing for that day, and that's all your focus is on, and you aren't satisfied in the moment because that day is coming. Everything is focused on that. It's a day of, of anticipation. You cannot wait, and you are longing for that. You just want that day to come. And I remember uh, that we decided to schedule our wedding at 7 p.m. on a Saturday. Friday, sorry. <laughs> it was on a Friday, which we had reasons for doing that. But in retrospect, that's a lot of longing and anticipation and angst leading up to that point. And I, I was thinking about it this morning. It got started out. I had all my buddies at, at my apartment who were going to be in the wedding and they came from out of town, and I got woke up at like 6.30 a.m. by a couple drunk guys who claimed their axle was broken on their car and needed my help uh, to fix it. And I'm like, what? And I, so I'm like, I can't help you because this is a made-up story. Uh, so that's how my day started, 6.30 a.m. And that it is the longest day of my life life. But that moment, right around 7 p.m., when my bride appeared down at the end of the aisle, there was joy. There, I was overcome with emotion. Now, you know me, I don't cry. My eyes feel funny. That, that's my thing. So if you don't know me, I don't really cry. Like, I just go, my eyes are feeling really funny. That's, that's just how it works. But I th think in that moment, I got some tears. My eyes watered up a little bit, and it was an amazing moment. And that's the image they're trying to give us here. A lot of times people tell the Christian story, creation, fall, redemption, and then they use a different term sometimes for the last one. One of the terms I use is consummation. And so the engagement period is difficult because you are longing for consummation. You are longing to be brought together as one. And there's angst in that. There's pain in that. There's anticipation in that. It requires patience and endurance. In fact, one of the themes of Revelation is that saints need patient endurance during this time. But the image of the new Jerusalem coming as a city prepared as a bride is to communicate that longing and anticipation for consummation. Because you aren't going to be fully satisfied in the moment. That the world we are in, you are going to be in pain and you are going to hurt and you are going to face death, but there is coming a day where you will get your satisfaction. You will consummate your relationship with God, and you will dwell with Him. And that gives us hope in the present. Hope 
impacts how you live right now. If you are longing for something, you can endure things. And it changes how you see the world around you. There's a, there's a St. Augustine quote. He's an he's a, he's a early church father from Africa. And uh, this quote, uh, he said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. Let me read that again. He's speaking to God. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. That we were made to rest and to dwell with God and our hearts are restless. I run into people all the time who have lived all their lives restlessly. Sometimes it's because of the family they were born into that there is too much pain from their childhood, that they never found a place to belong. And they're looking for that. They're looking for it in all sorts of places, and they're picking up hurt along the way as they give themselves to different people. I've seen relationships that go in cycles because people long for belonging. They long for acceptance. They long for love. And some people have a tough time finding that in this life. But the gospel message is that with God, we can find rest. We can find home. We can find welcome and belonging. So when you meet people who are hurting, who don't have a place to lay their head, they don't have a place to rest, whether that's physically or emotionally, you can give them this message that God wants to dwell with his people and that it's free of charge. Notice in verse 6, he says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. says he's going to give from the spring of the water of life. That is, speaks of flourishing and fulfillment and connecting with God what your life should, should be and connecting and loving him. Notice it says, without payment. So some people go, for me to get love and acceptance and belonging, I need to earn it. I need to pay in in order to get that back. But God says, what's his requirement here? Who is this for? It says, to the thirsty. Does it take much to be thirsty? Now I'm thirsty now. Requires no skills. It requires not working hard. It doesn't require anything of you. All you need to be thirsty is to have a lack of something. All you need is need. And in order to be welcomed into God's family, all you need is empty hands. All you need is a parched throat. All you need is longing for something new. And God says, if you're thirsty, I will give you these waters without payment. You don't need to have a certain amount in your bank account. You don't need to have achieved a certain amount in your life, either success or morally. If you are thirsty, come to him. Come to him. And there will come a day when all of us who are very thirsty in this life, he will give us the springs of the water of life and we will be refreshed 
for the ages to come. All you need is need. And you can tell people that. You can tell them of this Jesus who says, come. If you're thirsty, I will give you fulfillment. I will give you fullness of life. I'll give you a taste of it now. You'll be able to experience it now in the present. You'll be able to experience it all in the future. Verse 5. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I love that. That's the heart of Jesus. He wants to make all things new. In other words, you don't understand the lengths of which God wants to renew everything. You don't understand the depths of our brokenness and our pain now. But God says, behold, I am making all things new. He wants to make you new. He wants to renew your family. He wants to renew this earth. He wants to renew how we function as a society. And there's coming a day where he will make all things new. It gives us an expansive vision. Verse 7, it says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one who conquers. Uh, Revelation often talks about the one who conquers. The one who conquers is the one who has trusted Christ, who have received salvation from him, and have endured this world, who have followed the Lamb, who have suffered as they trust Christ, and when they endure to death, they're considered conquerors. Yes, they were defeated in this life, but Jesus refers to them as conquerors, and it says the conquerors will have this heritage. So what's your inheritance? What's your heritage? What will you have when the new age dawns? And this is what he says your heritage will be. I will be his God and he will be my son. Intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. It says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Now who's God's son? Jesus. But the word from the throne says, your heritage will be, you will be welcomed and accepted just as Jesus is because of what Jesus has done. Jesus stood in your place so you can be accepted as the firstborn son. Sometimes I run into people who have pain that they aren't the favorite child. I'm not the favorite. I, I, I'm, I'm hurt. And people are, are in pain about that. But no, this seems extravagant, but God accepts us just like Jesus because of what Jesus has done. That we are welcomed fully in. And the heritage, he says, is you get to have intimacy with him, like a father to a child. Uh, recently, I was having a tough day uh, and just feeling blah. And uh, Melvin walked up to me, he's five years old, and goes, Dad, did you know you're a child of God? And I'm like, what? He's <laughs> like, Dad. Did you know you're a child of God? I don't know why he said this. But I was like, what a reminder. What a powerful reminder that you're a child of God. 
So even in the midst of troubles, that's a powerful word to be spoken. And that's what it says our heritage is. You're a child of God. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, talking about the positive side, this is the flip side. That unrepentant sinners, and they list a number of those, are, are kept out of the city of God. They're kept out of the new heavens and new earth. And they face judgment. And we need to remember that. So I think there are two main applications to this passage. First, hope. Even if things are all not looking so good, whether personally or you don't like how things are going uh, in society as a general or on the news, there is hope. Because there's coming a day where God will set everything right. And all the pain that you have faced will be wiped away. All your tears that you cry will be wiped away. All the difficulty uh, that you face will come to an end. Now, in this life, we like to, we kind of want the new age to start right now. And we can... We try to do that by getting more wealthy and we try to move, get bigger houses. We try to move farther up. And what happens is we don't know that we're in transition. We don't know that we haven't arrived yet. And so what this passage does is tell us God is going to give us our hopes and our longings that there's coming a day, and that this period that we're in is a period of endurance and of suffering. That's a reality. Uh, too often in our churches, we, we try, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And while everything will be okay in an ultimate sense, and everything is good, hope tells us things may not be immediately okay. You may suffer, you may have pain, but that changes our disposition because when you have hope, uh, another quote says that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger that the things are the way they are and courage to make sure that they don't remain that way. So when I say God is going to bring us a new earth, I'm not saying sit back and wait for that. I'm saying hope stirs up in your heart and you can see the way the world's broken. When God gives you a vision of what the new heavens and new earth look like, where all are welcome, where the marginalized are no longer marginalized, where people are loved and accepted, where there is grace and mercy, where there is justice and equity, when you catch a vision of that world, you begin to see the way the world is not right. You begin to have anger that the world is broken in certain ways. Uh, so often, like I started out, we see the world through either a conservative lens or a progressive lens. So progressives imagine what the world should be and then work towards that. And 
it's not necessarily all bad. There's not necessarily all bad. But they see what they want the world to be, and then based on that, they get angry at the way things are now. Conservatives look to the good old days and see how things have changed from that and get angry at the way things are now. And then they have courage to make it like the good old days, or progressives have courage to make it like the vision that they see that the world should be. But as Christians, the vision that we have been given is given in the scriptures. It's a vision of who this God is. And it's not going to box us into any categories because we're going to see this is the way God wants us to be. And it's going to make you go to one side of the aisle one time, the other side of the aisle the other time. And here's the beauty of it. When you see the way the world is now and when you catch a vision of what God wants the world to be, you're going to accurately be able to tell what is wrong with the world. You're going to be accurately be able to perceive what's wrong. So when you have hope, when you believe that God is going to work, that he can change things, that he can resurrect things, you have anger that the way things are. But it's not just anger, it's courage. It's courage to do something about it. It's courage to say something. So that's first application. You can have hope. Even in the midst, no matter what else is going on, God's plan is still moving forward. It's still going to happen. We can have hope. And then the second application I talked about a number of things of here's what the vision of the new earth is. There's no more death or crying or suffering. There's acceptance. There's love. There's no more injustice. There's equity. The marginalized are welcomed in. We could talk about all those things. But here is the key feature of what the new heavens and new earth will be. Dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Intimacy with God. And think about hope. Hope helps you see what the future will be like and get angry at the way things are encouraged to make things the way they should be. And what is the key feature of the new heavens and new earth? That you will have intimacy with God. And are you longing for that world? Then what are you doing right now to develop that relationship with God? Do you have intimacy with God right now? Now that's kind of abstract. So let me ask this. Are you praying? Are you praying with God? Are you spending time doing that? Are you sharing your pain and your suffering with God in prayer when you don't like things, the way things are going out, are you crying out? When you are sad, are you lamenting? One thing I've learned in my relationship with my wife is I need to be a place where she can share her pain and her sadness. Often, as just the way I'm made up, I'm like, I don't, I, I want to keep that stuff away from me. I want to hear the happy stuff and funny stuff. But I don't want to hear the suffering and the lament. Now, I hope I'm growing at that. I think she would say I am better at that. But she shared with me that when I'm not a listening ear for that, that our closeness uh, dwindles away. 
We cannot be as close. We cannot be as close to each other. The same is true in our relationship with God. If you don't go to God in lament, in sorrow, then you are not fully intimate with him. If you are putting up front with God about just the happiness. So when things are going well, thank God. When things are going poorly, pray to him. If you need to lament, there's plenty of psalms in the Old Testament. <laughs> I used to not get the psalms. So in the psalms, you read it through, and it's basically a bunch of songs. And I'm like, man, these people are a bunch of whiners. They're always like, oh, life is bad. God help me. And then I grew up a little bit and go, hey, life is bad. Help me. And I've been beginning to engage that. And what you see there is intimacy with God and that they have a relationship with God and they say, things are going horribly. I need to cry out to you. And if you long for the new heavens and new earth, but aren't longing for intimacy with God now, I don't know if you're longing for the new heavens and new earth. We like the idea of a world set right. But the idea of a world set right the key feature is that you would be close to God. So are you praying? Are you reading scripture? Are you beginning to understand what his kingdom looks like from the scriptures? Because you aren't going to learn that from Facebook. You may get some really cool memes, but a lot of times the narratives in those memes are different from the narrative in the scripture. You may get it. You may learn things from the news. You may read Twitter or whatever you look at. You may watch movies. But are you engaged in the scriptures? Because you can hear from God here. You can understand his heartbeat for the world. When you understand his heartbeat, you have hope. Because you know the way God sees the world and he wants to dwell with us. So also... We talk about when you have hope, you see the way the world should be, so you have anger at the way things are, and courage to make things differently. And we talked about justice and equity, and, and that's always like easy to talk about, but at the heart of the way the world is going to be is that people will be intimate with God. So when you long for that, you need to long for other people to experience intimacy with God. So you need to disciple people. You need to tell people who don't yet know Jesus about this God. About this God that welcomes us, that wants to dwell with us. The promise of the new heavens and new earth gives us hope. And it draws us into intimacy with God. If you are not longing for intimacy with God, you are not longing for the new heavens and the new earth. So I call you, draw near to God in the present. Draw on the hope that he gives.